The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. So I want you to think for just a moment about the most intense, most difficult, most confusing sermon you have ever heard in your life. And if you have happened to have heard that sermon here in Las Vegas at a Baptist church on the southwest side of town from a somewhat short middle-aged pastor from the south, there's really no reason to kind of shout out names. I mean, you can leave that between you and Jesus. Uh, but if you got so many that you're having a hard time honing in on one or two, let me give you some categories that you can maybe begin to hone in on what that message might be. Maybe it was a sermon that focused on a hard saying of Jesus and that saying did not fit your image of Jesus. Uh, you've got this image of Jesus, this gracious, loving, kind, purple sash wearing view of Jesus. And uh, that particular saying did not fit that. And it kind of disrupted the way you look at Christ. And you don't like it. It's confusing. I understand. Uh, maybe it was a message on God's sovereignty. And how he controls everything from prosperity to disease, from blessings to disaster. And you love the fact that God is completely in control. But then you began to think of the flip side of that equation. If God is completely in control, why does he allow bad things to happen? And now there's been a tension that's created in your heart that it's not been released yet. Or maybe the message was on election and predestination and free will. And you might be new to the Calvinism-Arminian debate, but... Even on the surface, it seems like something is not right with the idea that God would elect some for salvation and not elect all for salvation. And then you begin to hear people talking, and they each have their own passages they're sharing, and these are books and resources on the topic, and you respect people on both sides. You're like, I'm just confused about this entire thing. Or maybe... It was a message on God's will and understanding God's will and how God's will can be applied into your life. And somewhere in the middle of that message, a pastor kind of speaks out and he says, you want to be in the center of God's will. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't even know if I'm on the fringes of God's will. I don't even know what God's will is, much less whether or not I'm in the center of God's will or not. So whatever that topic might be, I understand that any of those could be confusing. There's a lot of other topics that could also be extremely confusing. None of those could be fully explained inside of one message, and all of those have been debated ad nauseum for hundreds, if not a couple thousand years. So sermons can be difficult, and I know I've probably preached my fair share of difficult sermons. So at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, Paul, you did jar my memory on a few things. In fact, I can think of several messages that I've heard right here in Las Vegas by a pastor who's going to remain anonymous that fit what you're talking about. And I would say that's wonderful. Not wonderful that you've been confused, but wonderful that at least you're on that particular plane of thoughts. So whatever might be in your first, second, and third category, I want you to mentally shift it down to like four, five, and six, and let's clear out a little bit of room at the top. Because we got a doozy on the line today and next week and possibly the week after that. So what would you think if I were to tell you that today we are studying a 
hard saying of Jesus pertaining to God's will that is focused on his sovereign activity as it relates to election, predestination, and free will. Yeah, so you get where I'm going. Basically, take every difficult concept of Christianity, let's pile it together in about four verses, and that's the section that we're entering into this morning. So let's just say if that were to happen, we would probably want to break down some pieces, not try to take the whole thing down on one Sunday, but let's break it down into some smaller, more digestible chunks as we go along. So this morning, I am going to take the bulk of our time to explain a basic concept surrounding God's will. And you're going to tell by the text itself and by the title of the message that the will of God is very central to the section that we're addressing this morning. I'm also going to touch on God's sovereign activity as it pertains to salvation. And then next week, we are going to go into the difficult, uh, often uncharted waters of God's election, predestination, free will. And as we get into this, I am going to change some terminology, and that is I'm not going to discuss free will. I'll tell you why next week, but I am going to talk about human responsibility in this context. And all of this is still going to be flying under the banner that we established last week, and that is the general theme for all of this section, and that is that Jesus is the bread of life, and only those who savingly believe in him have eternal life. So we got a lot of complex stuff coming before us. But do not be afraid. I'm a professional. I'm going to try my best by the help of the Holy Spirit to walk our way through this particular text. So um, anyway, I invite you at this time, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter number 6. Gospel of John chapter 6, we're also going to have the text on the screen behind me. We're going to be in verses 35 through 40. I'm speaking this week as well as next week on the subject of the will of God. And if you want to be more specific, it would be the will of God as it pertains to salvation. Now, somebody might say, Paul, I'm already saved. And why are we taking the time to study a confusing topic if it doesn't necessarily affect me? Well, chances are you probably have some family members and some friends, some coworkers, some neighbors who are not yet saved. It is always a valuable investment of our time that we take the time to understand God's plan and his process when it comes to redeeming the lost. Not to mention the fact, when we understand the process more, it takes away some of our fears while it does not take away the great commission to go. So there's a lot coming in this. Let's take a moment and we're going to uh, read the text, pray, and go forward from there. So here it is, verse 35 and following. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that your Spirit once again guide us into all truth. 
God, we know it's a difficult text, but it is not too difficult for you to illumine our minds to the place in which we can understand what you're sharing in your word. God, we need you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I shared last week, verses 22 through 71 cover what has been referred to as Jesus' discourse on the bread of life. It is one of his longest sermons, but it is also one of his sermons that has the most theological implications for believers' everyday life. I also shared the big truth for this entire section. The entire section will be verses 22 through 71. That big truth is Jesus is the bread of life, and only those who savingly believe in him have eternal life. That is the big, general, overall picture of what's happening within these verses. Now, as we began the section last week, we talked about the work of God as it pertains to Jesus being the bread of life. That is one facet of this discourse. Today, we begin the will of God as it pertains to Jesus being the bread of life. That is another facet of this discourse. I want you to clearly see where this is at within the text itself. So after Jesus tells people that he is the bread of life, verse 35, and after he tells the crowd that they do not believe in him, verse 36, he then describes who will believe in him, verse 37. Here's what he said. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Those who come are those who believe, verse number 35. So notice how many times the word will appears in verses 38 through 40. It says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, who sent him? God the Father. He's saying, I am not here to do my own will. I am here to do the will of God the Father. And the context is that of salvation. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise up on the last day. This is the will of him who sent me. That is so direct, so clear. If somebody's saying, what is the will of God? Well, I can point to this one passage and I can say, this is the will of him who sent Christ. Specific to salvation, but if you want to understand what is God's will, here's one of those verses that's very clear that begins to describe it. Go on into verse number 40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So consider this. Verses 26 through 34 spoke of work or work of God five times. That's what we dealt with last week. Verses 35 through 40 speak of will, will of him, or will of God four times. So all of this is under the banner, under the big heading of God's will. In that same section, there are multiple other moving parts converging in this particular text. That is, Jesus as the bread of life, eternal life, the Father's will, believing in Jesus, God's sovereign plan for salvation, God's election and human responsibility, the eternal security of the believer, and the future resurrection of the believer. All of that and more is converging in these verses. It is one of the most jam-packed theological intersections of any text that we find within the Gospels. 
So when I say there's a challenge that we're coming into for the next couple of weeks, I mean there is a challenge that we're coming into. But it's not a challenge that if we take our time relying on the Spirit of God and we teach in context what the text is saying, it's not a challenge that we cannot walk through. With so many moving pieces, I am going to focus the remainder of our time today on the big framework of which the rest of this works out in, and that is the will of God. So before we get into that, let me give you a couple of disclaimers. I know I give a lot of disclaimers, but I'm going to give you a couple here. The first of those disclaimers, this is not in your notes, it's just something for you to think about, and that is you might have a slight headache by the time this is done. There's nothing to be alarmed about. Um, In fact, this last week, I was trying to wrap my mind around the will of God only to discover I didn't have enough mind to wrap. So there are certain parts of God's will that will always remain a mystery. There are certain aspects that he clearly shares with us in his word. So if you walk away with a slight headache, that's normal. Second, I'm not going to answer the one question about God's will you really want to know. How's that for honesty this morning? Because here's what I found over the years. People are not looking for what is God's will in general. We're not overly concerned about God's will in general. What we do want to find out is what is God's will for me? We become incredibly focused when self is at the middle of the conversation. And the opposite is also true. If you're talking about God's will in the world, what he's doing on his sovereign timeline, you're like, all right, that's great, but I'll study that when there's nothing else left to study in the Bible. So we want to know what is God's will for me, but here's what I want you to understand. You will never know God's individual will for you if you don't first understand God's general will as it is described in Scripture. So this is the foundation by which you will understand the next part. You're just not going to get it from me this morning. I don't know why I enjoy this so much today. It could, it could be because I'm looking out and I'm already seeing eyes glazed over. And I'm like, I'm 15 minutes in right now. I'm like, man, they are in trouble this morning. But one way or the other, I'm going to have a good time. So with that being said, let me give you some of the terminology in this because that is crucial here. As many of you all know, the Greek language is unbelievably clear and focused on specific words. And that's great when you're trying to understand what a word means and how it fits within context. So one of those is the word love. There are four different Greek words for the word love. There's the word phileo, there's the word agape, there's the word storge, there's the word eros. Although eros does not appear in your Greek New Testament, it is a Greek word for love as well. Now the wonderful thing about having such definitive words is when you're trying to understand a concept in the Bible and there's a definitive word, it gives you what the word is and how it fits. There is not a group of Greek words describing God's will. Instead, there are ways God's will is mentioned in Scripture of which we attribute English words to capture this biblical concept. So as everybody uses a different word, it means that there can be so many words that are whirling around in the conversation of God's will that it's hard to figure out where we're at. 
So here's just a few of those that I just wrote down out of a number of commentaries, sermons, and articles that I've read on the subject of God's will. That is, people talk about God's determinative will, his desirous will, his perfect will, permissive will, decreed will, perceptive will, directive will, discerned will, individual will, specific will, ideal will, moral will, sovereign will, decreative will, hidden will, revealed will, preferential will, prescriptive will, desiderative will. I just think people are making up words at this point. <laughs> And I'm over here thinking to myself, do I have to understand all of these to understand what is God's will? And here's what you'll find if you study a little bit deeper in what they're describing. That is, a lot of the terms are used interchangeably. So God's decreative sovereign and hidden will are the same thing. God's perceptive, revealed, and moral will are the same thing. But you wouldn't know that until you start digging deep into how are they using this term in reference to the will of God. That's why the conversation is so difficult. It's one that is incredibly exciting for believers, but it's also one that's incredibly confusing because everyone is using different terminology to describe a concept out of Scripture to the best of their ability. So this morning, instead of me going through and trying to slice and dice 19 different facets of God's will with these other words, I'm going to share with you the three general ways that God's will is used in Scripture. We went from 19 to 3. You see how I'm trying to help you out this morning? All right, so these are the three ways that God's will is mentioned in Scripture, and whatever word you want to use to describe those, that's between you and Jesus. So here's the first of those. The Bible speaks of God's predetermined plan, which he ordained from the beginning of time. This form of God's will is referred to as God's decreative, sovereign, or hidden will. This is God's ultimate will, which is hidden, and it is unknown until it happens. His plan, his will cannot be changed. It cannot be thwarted. It includes our salvation, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, God's covenant and promises, as well as God's choice of Israel as his chosen people based on Romans 11. His predetermined plan flows out of his sovereign nature as God. And when I say the word sovereign, what I mean is God is all-powerful. God is completely in control. His plan flows out of that. We see a part of God's plan flowing out in the area of Ephesians 1.11. It says that God predestines things according to his purpose. And then it says, and he works all things after the counsel of his will. There's that word again. In Job 42.4, it says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, the word purpose, it speaks of forethought. That is, God has purpose. God has planned. God has set certain things into motion. And what Job is saying in that text is he recognizes that God's plans cannot be overcome. They cannot be overpowered. They cannot be changed. It is set. That facet of God's will does not mean that God causes everything to happen. This is important. Rather, it acknowledges that since he is sovereign and completely in control, if something happens, it is that he has allowed it to happen or he has permitted it to happen. God, being sovereign, can choose to stop anything. 
So in that sense, he allows things to happen, or as the theologians would say, he has willed them to occur. That is facet number one. Number two, the Bible speaks of God's commands or his will that is revealed in the Bible. This form of God's will is referred to as God's perceptive revealed or his moral will. The Bible is not just a spiritual book that is filled with great morality teachings and morality stories, but rather throughout the Bible, it is referred to as God's word. You begin to find phrases like this, the Lord said, then God said, then the word of the Lord came to them saying, it's keep saying God's word, God said, God said. In fact, the Bible is referred to as being God breathed. It is referred to as being inspired by God. So a part of our understanding of God's will is that his word reveals his heart. So, for example, when God gives us his commands, thou shalt not murder, you just found God's will as it relates to murder. God's command, thou shalt not steal. You just found God's command, his will, his desire in the area of stealing. When God says you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. You have just heard his desire or his will in relationship to our relationship with him. So God's revealed will is seen in the Bible, and much of that is already revealed in our conscience based on Romans 2, 14 and 15. That takes us to number three. The Bible speaks of God's guidance or will for individual people. Now, this form of God's will is referred to as God's individual, specific, or ideal will. Paul began most of his letters with this interesting phrase. He is an apostle, here it is, by the will of God. Now, that was not a description that was given to everyone. But for him, he was an apostle, a very individual piece by the will of God. We find that Philip was led by the Spirit to the Ethiopian eunuch, that Paul was led by the Spirit to Macedonia, that Peter was led by an angel of the Lord out of prison. In each of those, it indicates God leading their lives in accordance with God's will and with God's plan. However, we do not know the scope of God's individual will. That's where a lot of confusion begins to set in. How much of your life does God intend to be led by some spiritual supernatural prompting? Or how much of your life does God intend to be led by understanding the parameters of Scripture, walking in biblical wisdom, and being in right relationship with God? Uh, We're not absolutely sure on this, but it seems like the weight of evidence would go towards the second of those, that God desires that we would live within the parameters of Scripture, that is His revealed will, applying biblical wisdom that He has provided in His Word, and walking in right relationship with Him. So consider this example when it comes like bringing up children with how God the Father directs His children. Okay, so here's what I would say. The process of training children should lead to less and less parental involvement over the course of time. Early on, when that child is really, really young, you have to tell that child everything. you got to teach them right from wrong, good from bad, when to sleep, what to eat, how to act, how to play, all of those things you're having to teach and train. But over the course of time, you will find that they begin to pick up on the basic parameters and teachings that you have set in motion. It should be 
that they're not having to come to you with every problem because you gave them a framework to work through some of those problems. Now, what you'll find is that over the course of time, if they have the right framework and if you have built a relationship with them and you've helped them process difficult moments, they will not have to come to you over and over for every issue. If you got a child who never grows up, who never can handle their own problems, we would say that's a problem. We would say they need to mature. Hold that idea and think of the way that God develops his children. That is, he gives us the parameters of how to live in this life through his revealed word. In his word, he will tell us what is marriage supposed to look like, family supposed to look like. How are you to serve? Where are you to focus? Where are you to invest your time and resources? He gives us the basic parameters of Scripture. And then if those basic parameters are not enough for an individual piece that might be very specific to your life, he gives us principles of wisdom to apply that are within his word. There's three entire books in your Bible dedicated to nothing but wisdom. That is Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the book of James. So let's say that a person says, what I'm dealing with, it's not in the revealed word. I'm still struggling to figure out where this applies through wisdom because what I'm dealing with is something like, who should I marry? And I got a couple of Christians that I'm focused on. They seem like they would be a great fit. I'm just not sure. Or maybe somebody is saying, do I take this job or do I take another job? Or do I take buy this house or do I buy another house? I I, I want God's will. I'm just not sure what that is. Then if it has not been revealed in his word clearly, if you have applied biblical wisdom and you're still wondering, then that's where there are those occasional promptings that the Spirit of God may give you that is the overflow of your personal relationship with him. It might be he brings a conversation in. He might change some circumstances. He might get your attention through other events. But that is not to be the norm. That is to be the exception to the norm. So let's bring all of those pieces together. God has an ultimate plan that he does not reveal in advance. And it is formulated in eternity past, and it cannot be changed. God has a revealed plan that is found in his word. And his word describes how to live in life in general. But we also find that there are occasions when God gives specific guidance that flows out of an intimate relationship with him. That guidance will never contradict his word. And please listen to this. A failure to study scripture is not an excuse for needing additional guidance. In other words... If you're saying, I don't have time to study the word, I just want God to tell me what to do here. He would say, no, I've told you what to do. You've just not taken the time to study what I've told you to do. So this is back in your notes. Here's your crash course. And I I promise we're about three, four minutes away from being finished. You've made it. Most of your eyes are still open. That's a step in the right direction. All right, so what should you know to get your mind around the will of God so that you can now look at this particular text. Here's three things in your notes. Part of God's will is hidden, and you will only know it after it happens. Part of God's will is revealed, and you can know it through Scripture. And part of God's will is individual, 
and you discover it when you live within the parameters of Scripture, applying biblical wisdom, and walking in relationship with God. So in our text this morning, it specifically addresses that top category. Part of God's will is hidden, and you will only know it after it happens. This is referred to as God's decreative, sovereign, or hidden will that was ordained before time. So as we close this morning, I want you to see how that part of God's will just applies in the area of salvation. And and I'm just going to read some verses to you, but I want you to keep thinking about this hidden will that you do not know until after it happens. It is this part of God's will that will help us understand what verses 37 and 39 say. All that the Father gives me will come to me. You will never understand the word gives if you don't first understand his will. So just think about these verses. If you were to roll down to verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 65, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Acts 13, 48, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Did you see those words? Appointed. That is, there is a directive that is happening. No one can come unless it's been granted by the Father. That is, he is in the driver's seat. No one can come unless the Father draws him. That is that the Father is the one bringing us in. Again, we have to understand this or otherwise you're going to hate the rest of John chapter 6. So Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those, here it is, who are called according to his purpose. His purpose is his plan. For those he foreknew, he also predestined, there's that word, to become conformed to the image of his son. And these whom he predestined, he also called. There's that word once again. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he chose us in him, listen to the timeline, before the foundation of the world. In other words, before you were born. Before your great, 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 great granddaddy was born. This is a part of his sovereign, decreative, hidden will that has been in place since before time began. And by the way, this is going to be the best news you ever hear if you'll stick with me on it. It goes on, Colossians 3.12, so that all those who have been chosen of God, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we should always give thanks to God for you because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen that they may be obtained with salvation. This is just a handful of the passages that speak of God's will, of God's choosing, of God's plan in reference to salvation. Now, before people blow up my inbox this next week with all of your questions, I'm going to ask you to hold the questions until we finish the section. 
If you still have the questions at the end, it's not a problem. But I know that the further we go, we're building foundation upon foundation upon foundation so that some of your questions today will be answered next week. Some of those will be answered the following week. So just hold back on all the questions for just a bit. But I am going to encourage you to begin to pray through those with God. Say, God, I don't want to run from the hard stuff. And even if I don't understand it, I want to know you and I want to know your word. Did you know every passage I just read is just as biblical as John 3.16? As a believer, you want the whole counsel of God. You don't want to cherry pick the parts that make you comfortable and leave the rest out. So as we go through this, we're going to just take our time and see what God's word has to say. Don't allow your personal convictions to keep you away from biblical truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would give us incredible insight and patience, Lord, in these verses. God, I know that a lot of times it almost feels like we are walking in a fog, that things are not clear, that it doesn't make sense. How does this passage connect with another one? And God, there's, there's a tension that is created But we recognize, Lord, that in your mind, there is no tension. In your mind, it is incredibly clear. And our job is not to try to solve you as a puzzle. Our part, Lord, is to trust you even when we don't understand. God, thank you for being gracious with us in that. That you will pepper our lives with small moments of conversations that will prepare us for something like this. Lord, thank you for that. I pray that as we finish this morning, God, all of our eyes and our heart and our intention, our focus is upon you. That even when we don't understand a text yet, we can still say, I don't have to understand that to understand who you are. And I'm going to worship you anyway. In Jesus' name. Amen.